Well, turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And we now get into the courtship of Solomon. And you remember that the young woman who is the kind of the star of the show here, we have given her the name Shulamith. This is a proper name based on chapter 6, verse 13, where she's called the Shulamite, but it can be rendered as a proper name. And so we'll call her Shulamith. It's a little bit more personal. And you recall that both Solomon and Shulamith come from the same root Hebrew word that means peace. We get shalom from Solomon and Shulamith. Now, the title of my message tonight is The Longing for Friendship. And I don't always tell you that, but I want to make sure that we emphasize that this is the starting point of a romantic relationship. Yes, in chapter 4, we get to their wedding night where they're now completely vulnerable to one another in total intimacy. But this is the starting point. And this is so important that really the the heart of chapter 1 starts us here because this text tonight is going to really describe the proper foundation for a marriage. And we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. And I'd like to get right into the text And so I just have a very simple organization in two parts tonight. First, we're going to look at Shulamith's request for special friendship. Shulamith's request for special friendship. Now, I want to remind ourselves of the context. It's been a number of weeks since we've been here. First, Shulamith is expressing her fondness, her longing for Solomon. They were very likely childhood friends, as we mentioned earlier. Her family leased a vineyard from Solomon's family, the family of King David, his father. And so they've known each other for some time. And at first, she's speaking to her friends, what uh, later in the book they're called the daughters of Jerusalem. Verse 5, daughters of Jerusalem. And then later on in the book, they're identified sometimes as others. You might see in, your, in the text that's added, the titles that are added to help you in the text. And look what she says to her friends in verse 2. She expresses her desire. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, the, the younger ladies that are around her, they affirm that Solomon is worthy of her love. Speaking to Solomon, speaking of Solomon, since these are masculine pronouns here, the second half of verse 4, we will exult and rejoice in you. Speaking of Solomon, we will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then Shulamith expresses her desire for unconditional love. She's been working hard outdoors. She doesn't have the alabaster skin of a woman raised in the courts of the king. In verse 5, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, it's been a number of weeks since we've been here, and so it's important for us to be reminded that there is an implied concern here. And that's based on the historical context. And so I want to remind us of this. This concern is the fact, into verse 4, 
rightly do they love you. Who is the they? If we can put it that way. Well, let's put the context together. You recall that it was about 974 BC. Solomon became co-regent with his father, King David. And Solomon is just 17 or 18 years old. And we know that, that during this time period, five major changes took place in Solomon's life. Huge adjustments. And we said that first of all, King David got Solomon a wife named Naamah. First Kings 14.31 tells us this. This was a political alliance with the Ammonites. The second adjustment that happened in Solomon's life is he became the sole king of Israel when David died. He's probably 20 years old at this point. The third big adjustment. Almost immediately, Solomon's older brother, Adonijah, tried to take the throne of Israel from Solomon and Adonijah was executed for his trouble. The fourth major adjustment, three years after David's death, Solomon needed to make certain that Egypt, one of the biggest powers in the region, was at peace with him. And so he did what his father taught him. He married the daughter of Pharaoh. So already he has at least two wives that we know of. And the fifth major adjustment, because of his humility before the Lord, God granted to Solomon to be not only the wisest man of all time, but the wealthiest man of all time. And we spent time going through his wisdom and through his wealth. And we saw that this is a problem. From a human standpoint, this is going to be difficult. Solomon has already made two marriage alliances with the Ammonites and with the Egyptians. But as the wealthiest and wisest man on earth, what else would follow? Hordes of women. Women being thrown at him by by kings of the world and we saw that ultimately Solomon did not do well in this category. And we spent a little time in Ecclesiastes 12, and we saw that in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 and 10, written by Solomon, that he spent his final years on earth writing what he learned, giving us the wisdom literature that we now have in Scripture. And during this time, he wrote Song of Solomon, reflecting back on his one true love. And now we would recall that at the age of 17 or 18, when Solomon became co-regent, when he was given a political alliance wife, Naamah of the Ammonites, remember that this is the time that the romance and the marriage of Solomon and Shulamith, the one he had grown up with, that's, this is happening at the same time. This romance and this marriage with Shulamith likely took place about 974 to 972 BC, right in there. And it would have been concurrent at the same time as the arranged political marriage with Naamah. And so Solomon is in a great struggle as a very young man. The marriage of necessity and expectation with Naamah and the love of his life. The heart of his heart, the girl he had grown up with, Shulamith. Just a farm worker, just a country girl, but his one true love. And we noted that so much of Song of Solomon takes place in the countryside or in the forests. Solomon and Shulamith off together, getting him away from the pressures and the forced romances of life, not only as a king, but as a man who would quite literally be the most sought-after man on earth. In fact, you could hear the shadows of Shulamith's concern. Chapter 2, verse 15, she says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. There, there's, a, there's a concern on her part, and there's very good reason to believe that the little foxes are the many other women surrounding Solomon. And 
and the threat to the budding romance of Solomon and Shulamith. So not only does Song of Solomon represent the highest ideals of marital love as given by God, but it's also a reflective poem on Solomon's own failure to keep his eyes on one woman, on the one true love of his life. And we know that before, can you imagine how even greater Solomon would have been viewed had he spent 40 years as a king married to one woman. But he wasn't able to do that. But now we return back to those early days, to the glorious time of the budding romance of Solomon and Shulamith. She's expressed her desire for unconditional love, and now she speaks directly to Solomon, and she makes a request for special friendship. Verse 7 of chapter 1. She says to him, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? And so she's making this request for special friendship, and there's three parts to it. And I want to divide this down into these three parts to help us understand what she's doing here. The first part of this request for special friendship, she expresses her affection She expresses her affection. She calls him, you whom my soul loves. Now, this is really just the beginning of this use of nicknames, of pet names, you might say. She uses pet names, nicknames for Solomon 28 times in the poem. Solomon doesn't speak nearly as much in the poem as Shulamith does. And yet he uses pet names 21 times. Just a slight side note. Solomon's most intense use of pet names happens when later in their married life he's expressing his desire for her. He's knocking on her bedroom door and he requests in chapter 5 verse 2, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. So he's expressing his affection as well. But here we have her first expression of her love and affection for him. Now it's important to remember that they were childhood friends but now the relationship has changed. And this is a key moment This is a potentially terrifying moment. Why would it be terrifying? She's making herself vulnerable. She's putting it out there that her affection for him is overwhelming her. This isn't, I kind of like you, let's see where this goes. No, this is, you are the one embedded in my soul. Let's talk about playing hard to get for just a moment. A young woman who's not yet ready to be married, meaning she hasn't finished preparing for marriage in terms of growing up, of developing, maturing, having the skills and the depth necessary to navigate married life as an adult, that young woman should play hard to get. Or maybe a better way to say this is that she should guard her heart. What does it mean to guard your heart as a young woman and as a young man? You don't toy with romantic thoughts. You don't spend time with with others of the opposite sex for extensive periods of time. You don't even appear to be exclusive with one other person. You guard yourself. You guard your heart. But we have to note again, and we'll repeat this over and over again, that there is a clear distinction in Song of Solomon between Shulamith and the daughters of Jerusalem. Shulamith is completely ready to be married. The younger girls, the daughters of Jerusalem, are not ready. And Shulamith herself exhorts them multiple times to not awaken love until the right time. So yes, to the young ladies, play hard to get. Don't toy with romantic feelings. Don't toy with dating for fun. There's no biblical model for that whatsoever. Don't appear to be the flirt 
that potentially misleads young men. This is a great way to break your own heart. It's a great way to break the hearts of young men. It's a great way to potentially become so emotionally attached that you can't resist temptation any longer and you give away your purity, you give away your virginity. Why is this a temptation? Because God made us to grow in a unique and lovely bond with one another, which is ultimately expressed in the one flesh physical union of marriage. But now all kinds of trouble can literally derail a young person's life because you didn't wait for the right time. But for Shulamith, she's grown. She's ready for marriage. And now she does not play hard to get. Quite the opposite. She makes herself vulnerable. There's a huge problem among our generation today, and that is uh, the problem of young people not saying what's in their heart. And you have these guessing games happening sometimes for years But for her, it's no more hard to get. Now it's, I'm here. I'm expressing my love for you. Now you remember from the last message that they've already taken time to get to know one another. They've they've grown up together. So this isn't a surprise. So of course there has to be a time of getting to know each other, of developing this love. But at some point, she expresses her love to him. And in fact, not doing this, getting in the habit of not expressing your love, it can have disastrous consequences in married life as a, as a false righteousness or even a legalism that even in marriage somehow coyness and, and shyness and being withdrawn is somehow holy and righteous. What, the, what, what would the Bible call coyness and shyness and being withdrawn in marriage? The Bible calls this sexual immorality. To be open and vulnerable in a sexual manner before marriage is sexual immorality, Hebrews 13.4, and to not be open and vulnerable in a sexual manner after marriage is also sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 7. And so she's making the shift. She's making the shift from guarding her heart, from being the one who is not letting love develop to now blossoming. And she puts herself out there in a vulnerable and, yes, a very risky position. You are the one my soul loves. Now, this would have been a very, very short poem if in the next verse Solomon said, Oh, I'm sorry, you misunderstood. Gee, look at the time I got to go. End of poem. What a sign of strength and character and even kindness to Solomon. Why is this kind to Solomon? She's not playing games. She's not being coy. She's not making them guess where she stands. They aren't circling each other, trying to figure each other out. She's not going to her friends and saying, go ask Solomon if he likes me. She says, I love you with my soul. And of course, she has the potential to be hurt. But not only does she express her affection, the second part of this request for special friendship, she requests time together. She requests time together. And she's not asking. She's going after him. She says, tell me, imperative. This is a command. Tell me where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. Now, just a little side note here. Some have felt that young King Solomon certainly wouldn't be bothered with keeping sheep. But keep in mind that he's still young. He's not the sole king. And it's reasonable to assume that his father, David, the shepherd, would want Solomon to have some connection to the rural agrarian life that he grew up with and really characterizes the whole nation. And so it's not unusual that he would have sheep of his own. 
Now a shepherd would take his flock out to graze in the various fields all around Jerusalem. And when the heat of midday hit, everything would slow down. He would have a a usual place to bring the flock to rest. And he would find a shady spot for the afternoon. In fact, some feel that King David himself, as a, as a youngster, when he was shepherding the flocks, that this is during these rest times in the afternoon is when he learned to be musical and to play his little harp and to learn to compose songs and poems. And so it's a time of reflection. It's a time of rest and certainly would be a great time of relationship building. You're just resting there in the afternoon. And so Shulamith is requesting that he spend time with her. She doesn't demand that he drop his work to do so. She judiciously picks a time that would be convenient for him and says, I'd like to spend that time with you. And yes, she is giving what in Hebrew is essentially a command. Tell me where you'll be at noon. She's putting herself in the position of complete openness and susceptibility to rejection. Yes, she is taking the risk. But this isn't a disrespectful command. This isn't a power-hungry command. This isn't an irritated command. This isn't a wife commanding her husband, get the dishes done or get the trash out. This is a positive command. Tell me where I can come spend time with you. So she expresses her affection. She requests to spend time with him. And the third part of her request for special friendship, really the main focus of the verse, she asks to be unique to him. She asks to be unique to him. At the end of verse 7, she says, Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Now this phrase, why should I be like one who veils herself, is somewhat of a landmine of interpretive possibilities. The most popular interpretation is that prostitutes veiled themselves as they went around the shepherds looking to lead one astray for money and Shulamith doesn't want to appear like one of those by walking around looking for him. And that preaches really well, and there's some good lessons you could take from that. But that doesn't really fit the context here. Appearing to be a prostitute is the least of her concerns. Remember that by now, Solomon has at least one wife, the political alliance wife, Naamah. I know that's just a reality in the ancient Near East that's hard for us to relate to, but that's not the point of the story right here. I think a better way to understand Her request, why should I be like one who veils herself, is a lot more straightforward. There were plenty of female shepherds, young women, helping take care of the family flocks. Archaeology has shown that these young women wore a cloak with a loose hood that would be pulled all the way over to protect her from the sun. And so so she would have this, this veiled look. And maybe even an actual veil was worn also, and it served a double purpose. Not only did it protect you from the sun, but it also served as a means of modesty and keeping aloof from young men, potentially with a veil also. Why would they want to be modest and keep aloof from young men? Because men are men, and they need to keep their distance. The young men are out there keeping their flocks. And so the young woman who is still veiled, who is still cloaked, And just having to be near other shepherds is nothing special. She's just almost uh, anonymous. They're just sprinkling the countryside. But Shulamith says, I don't want to be one of those. I don't want to be just one of the women out there. What she says is, I don't want to be somebody like that. Nothing special. Just hanging around your friends, your companions. No, instead, she desires 
to find where he is at a shaded spot alone, to take down her hood, to take off her veil, and to be unique to him, to be special to him. I made the case last time we looked at this text that Shulamith is a true worshiper of Yahweh with a true internal reality of faith. It's unlikely that one of the greatest examples of God's view of marital love is going to be an apostate unbeliever who's disloyal to the Lord. And certainly this vulnerability that she's showing here, it must be accompanied by a trust in the Lord, by relying on Him to help her, because rejection is a very real possibility. And so in a very real way, this is an act of faith. She could completely protect herself by just hoping that he'll eventually read her mind and and figure her out. But instead, she stops playing hard to get and simply says, I love you. I want to spend time with you. And I want to be the most special friend that you have. The right and God-given precursor to a full marriage relationship. So she puts it all out there. She reveals her heart. And what does he do? Well, we've seen Shulamith's request for special friendship, our second part tonight. Let's look at Solomon's affirmation of special friendship. Solomon's affirmation of special friendship. And he answers in three parts. And just in case there's any suspense, it's all yes. The first part of his answer. Yes, I return your affection. That's his answer. Yes, I return your affection. Verse 8 If you do not know, O most beautiful among women. What's he saying? If you do not know, in other words, where he'll be with his flocks at noon. But he calls her, O most beautiful among women. In Hebrew, the beauty among all the women. You are the beauty. You're not just kind of compared. There is no comparison. You are the beauty. Now, why is this important? You remember what she said about herself earlier? Verse 6, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. She's concerned about her appearance. She's looking for affirmation that went beyond mere physical looks. There's no doubt she was physically beautiful, but she certainly wasn't perfect. But he calls her the beauty among women. This is a way of him saying, I'm only looking at you. Considering the situation back at the palace, This is a very, very important statement for him to make, isn't it? She'd put herself out there. She was vulnerable to Solomon. You are the one my soul loves. And he returns this affection. You are the beauty among women. Much more than the commentary on her looks. It's a a reciprocation of the affection that she's already expressed. And we've all seen this maybe even in, in romantic comedy movies or TV shows where somebody puts herself out there and says I love you and the guy says okay and it's just so awkward but he returns the affection now there is a bit of humor here he says if you do not know where I hang out at midday with my flocks meaning I know that you already know you've done your homework I know that you've already figured this out the first part of his answer yes I return your affection The second part of his answer, yes, I want to spend time with you. Yes, I want to spend time with you. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. Not only is he giving her directions, he's also telling her to leave her flock behind and come to see him. 
Leave him behind. Leave him with some of the other shepherds and you come alone so that there's no distraction. This is the phase of their courtship where they're beginning the friendship process. It's no longer the childhood relationship that they had. Now their friendship has a purpose. It has a trajectory. It has a direction. It has an end goal. And now it begins the very, the very seeds of taking on that mysterious one flesh unity that ultimately is accomplished in marriage. There's absolutely no substitute for time together. She's asked for time and he said yes. But not only does he give the first part of his answer, yes, I return your affection. The second part, yes, I want to spend time with you. He gives the thrilling information in the third part of his answer, yes, you are unique to me. You are unique to me. Verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, without understanding the context, not a good idea to say to the love of your life, you are like a horse, my dear. So don't do that without context. See the importance of hermeneutics, even to your marriage. But to Shulamith, living in 1000 BC or so, she would know what he meant by this. This would actually be very thrilling information to, to, her, to her to hear. Why is this? When he says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Here's the context. The Egyptian army was traditionally thought to have had the finest horses in the ancient Near East. There wasn't much in the way of horseback riding, but what they did use them for was to pull battle chariots. They had to be very, very highly trained and, and valuable horses. They were valued, they were prized, they were the best in the world. It was said that a slave was less valuable than a horse. But the Pharaoh also had a personal chariot. The one used to transport him. It would have been ornate. It would have been fancy, befitting the king of an empire. And so Pharaoh would occasionally go to the stables of all the grand and the mighty steeds raised to pull the battle chariots. Thousands of them. And he would go from, from stable to stable to stable with the, the experts, the, the, those who raised the horses. And he would pick the best of the best of the best. And he would pick a beautiful mare that he would say she should never go into battle, but instead would be given a fancy headdress appropriate to the elegant horse to serve the king of the land. Solomon is telling Shulamith, I chose you. You are the best of the best of the best. And he uses another pet name. I compare you, my love. He uses that name about a dozen and a half times throughout the poem, he continually calls her my love to affirm his affection for her. And in fact, he keeps with the word picture here as, as Pharaoh's mare fitted with a fancy headdress as he's telling her that she's the best of the best outfitted with ornamentation. In all likelihood, they're now at this point together. They're at that meeting spot at the, in the shade at the noonday time in the shady outdoors where she's met him. And he has told her in verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. You are the best of the best with your fancy ornaments. And at that moment, he pulls out a gift. Jewelry. And he gives it to her as it were a headdress. Verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck with strings of jewels. 
This would have been an entirely new experience for her, a humble shepherd girl who, who didn't have the, the resources for jewelry. She's not somebody that's in a palace. She's outdoors. She's working in vineyards. She's keeping her flocks. To be thought of as so special that Solomon surprises her with some sort of earrings. That's probably what your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, dangling earrings. And a string of either pearls or some have thought mother of pearl seashells. Something beautiful. Look at what he's given to her to show that she is the most special to him. Verbal affirmation of his love. Yes, he's used words and poetic words at that. Not only verbal affirmation of love, he gives her time, the greatest gift. Not only verbal affirmation of love and time, but verbal affirmation that she is the most special to him. And just to make sure he nails that down on top of all of that, a tangible expression of how he feels about her. Something that when she wears it, reminds her that she is most special of all to him. And in fact, the daughters of Jerusalem get in on this. Their eyes are sparkling now because they saw jewelry. Verse 11, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver, which is very interesting because they probably didn't have any gold studded with silver. They just had their imagination and they wanted to get in on this. Maybe Solomon gives these girls the raw materials to actually make jewelry or maybe they're simply expressing their desire to, to dress her up for him. In any case, now the young women are watching. The ones who previously said in verse 4 about Solomon, rightly do they love you, that women are crazy about Solomon and they're, they're in on this. I, I don't know how it is for young women, but I seem to, but kind of looking through the foggy uh, window of, of what a woman's world is like, but it seems that when romance is happening, it happens in groups. That if one woman is involved in the potential romance, all of her friends are a part of it as well. I, I don't know guys who do that. I'm getting dressed for a date and I'm going to invite all my friends over here to help me. So these girls get in on it. Their eyes are popping at the jewels that she just received. And they said, let's, let's do more. Now they see that Shulamith is his true love. First, they said, rightly do all the women love you. Now they see who his true love is. I'd like to just spend the rest of our time being as practical as we can here in three ways. I'd like, first of all, to give some applications to those yet to be married. I'd like to give some assignments to those who are married. And most importantly, I'd like to give some reminders to all of us as believers in Christ, because there's some beautiful pictures here. So let me start here. Applications to those yet to be married. Maybe we could call this three lessons. And these are, these are not short, so I don't know how you're going to write these down. But lesson number one. I want you to notice how respectful Solomon is. Do you notice where his focus is? His focus is on her face. He's not being sexual. He's not being sensual with her. But he's building the relationship with time and with words. You can't build a lasting relationship on the foundation of physical attraction, on the foundation of lust only. That goes away. That's a lie that the world promotes. How do we know that's a lie? We have some pretty good evidence just a few miles south of here. The handsome and the beautiful people of Hollywood plowing through marriage after marriage, one after another. 
Yes, a marriage is then built and maintained with God's gift of sexuality. In fact, it's so important that, that Paul forbids abstinence in marriage. But it doesn't start there. Where does this bond, this unity, this oneness, where does it start? It starts by being friends, by spending time together. Can you picture this scene? A, a beautiful, cool, shaded tree in the countryside, maybe on a hill with sheep quietly resting all around. Time to talk, time to express affection, maybe time to get a string of pearls, who knows? But Solomon is respectful. When you get to chapter 4 after their wedding, yes, he is focused on the entirety of her person. But at this stage, he just says, look at your face. Look how beautiful you are to me. There's a second lesson to those yet to be married. At some point, you must communicate directly. Yes, there is risk involved, but that's better than playing the game of trying to figure someone else out. Shulamith expressed her tremendous interest and and at this point even expressed her love for Solomon. Absolutely, he could have shot her down. But she was brave and she just put herself out there. Now, don't take this as a rule of some sort that women are supposed to go first and can give this expression. But it also confirms that they can. That they can. Maybe a young person is not nearly at a point with someone where you say you're the one whom my soul loves. But at some point, you have to at least express interest that perhaps another person could become the one my soul loves. Sometimes you have to just say it. And what does that involve? It involves trusting the Lord. It involves saying that in my heart, if this person just shoots me down like yesterday's newspaper, I can live with that because God is good. And lesson number three, for those yet to be married, yes, marriage is supposed to be with your best friend. Marriage is supposed to be with your best friend. Your friendship is the foundation and the relation that you have with one another. Who wants to be married to somebody that's not your friend? There's a very popular concept of marriage which says that your real friends are outside your marriage. That is absolutely unbiblical and it's also dangerous because it sets up a precedent in which spouses routinely complain to their other friends about one another. Why would you do that? Complaining to others about your spouse is the worst form of gossip because you're denigrating the one flesh relationship with your spouse. There's great freedom in getting to know a friend. This will over time develop naturally into more depth of love, more affection for one another, which really should be a lifetime endeavor. Just the other night, Sylvia and I were marveling at the fact we've known each other for for over three decades, and we still are discovering new things and enjoying one another. We just enjoy being friends. Let me give some assignments to those who are married. I promised you assignments. Here's a sound we want to hear. Let me give you three of them. This is not complex. Assignment number one, do something together this week that's purely for the sake of spending time together. Just to spend time together, not multitasking to get something done, but just to say to one another, you are so important to me that I just want to spend time with you. No other reason, nothing else happening. I've had the privilege of doing counseling for a lot of years and I'm amazed how many married couples have forgotten how to be friends. I'm amazed how many married couples have forgotten to enjoy each other or how to just hold hands. 
and relish that connection and enjoy that. Sylvia and I like to hold hands. It's not just a romantic gesture. It's not an act of discipline. We need to hold hands because we're one. And when I'm not holding her hand, I'm incomplete. You need to hold hands. You need to be joined as friends. And so married couples, do something this week purely to spend time together. I suggest that you be giving to one another in this. Did you notice something that Shulamith did? She went to where Solomon was. She showed interest in what he was doing and what he was interested in. And so give to one another by sharing ideas of what would be meaningful ways to spend time together. Not just what she wants, not just what he wants, but what you can do together. Here's a second assignment. And this may be harder for some of you than for others, but I believe that the Lord can help you. And that is use words to express your love. Use words to express your love, whether in writing or or spoken words. Yes, men, that means you as well. You don't get to fall back on the, I told you I loved you when I married you. I'll let you know when that changes. A relationship without words is not a relationship. Words are, are the means by which God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And if you really want to be effective, ask one another what sort of words mean the most to each other because they will be different. A, a woman may want to hear words like you are the flower of my soul and you are the one that I think about and I love. A man may want to hear words like would you like me to go to Home Depot with you? Now bring a tear to his eye. And so just ask what are the words you want to hear? In all seriousness, say or write words as if it will be your last chance because someday it will be. What would you write to your wife if it was your last time? What would you write to your husband if it was the last time? And assignment number three, remember assignment number one, to do something purely to spend time together? Assignment number three is that if that is not built into your life, built into your schedule right now, build it in before tomorrow is over. What are we waiting for? What are you waiting for? Well, when my life gets less complicated, I'll spend time with my wife. When life gets less hectic, we'll spend time together. Can I remind us all of a truth that we all know instinctively? Your coworkers won't remember you a month after you're gone. Your neighbors won't even remember your name a week after you move. Even church members come and go in the providence of God, but in all likelihood, your husband or wife is going to be the last person you see on this earth before meeting Christ. Long after other relationships have come and gone, this one will endure. So make it sweet. Make it delightful. Make it a friendship that you can savor and enjoy. Put your friendship in your calendar. Make it that important. There's one last application I'd like to hit. I'd like to speak to all of us as believers in Christ. We've been very clear that Song of Solomon is not written as an allegory of God and Israel or of Christ and the church. We've already covered that. I think we've been very clear on that. But since human marriage was given by God in part to act as a picture of Christ and the church, of our Savior and of each Christian, Ephesians 5, the Bride of Christ, I'd like to remind us of two tremendous truths that we can see in the form of illustration from this text. The first truth 
Just like Solomon made a choice to view Shulamith as the best of the best, God has made a choice to view you as perfectly righteous, as perfectly holy because of the work of Christ on the cross to make satisfaction for your sin debt. And think about this. Shulamith would become the daughter-in-law, the daughter, really, of the greatest king of Israel, King David. And she would be given in marriage to the king's son, Solomon. And already we begin to see the benefit to her. Here here she is, just a humble shepherdess, a, a tender of a vineyard. And he gives her jewels because he can. Because he is Prince Solomon, soon to become King Solomon. And he begins to bless her with all that is his. All that he has is becoming hers. She'll never lack anything again. And this reminds us of Romans 8, beginning in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Let me give you one more tremendous truth that this text reminds me of. God made a choice. He chose for you to be his friend. He chose friendship with you. Why is that so marvelous? Why is that so tremendous? Because you didn't act like a friend, did you? You rebelled against God from the moment you could. If God said A, you said Z. If God said don't, you said I will. If God said do this, you said I won't. You have been sinning since the moment you could make the choice to sin. You have acted as if there is no God. You have acted like like you are the king of the universe, the, the queen of the world. And yet he chose you to be his friend and he did so in stunning fashion that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has sacrificially paid the penalty for your sin to reconcile you to God. We cherish the words of Christ from John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his what? Friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, obey the gospel. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You see, the friendship that ought to be so prominent in marriage is nothing more than a proper reflection of how God has chosen to relate to us, to all who have placed their faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sin. And so my encouragement to you is that you see the friendship with your spouse or your future spouse as being as accurate as possible a reflection of the friendship that God has chosen to extend to you by grace. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for this time. This is a tender and a precious text. It brings a smile to our face, even a a chuckle to our hearts, Lord, to see the, the banter between Solomon and Shulamith, to see the developing love, to see the simplicity of expressing love and 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 returning that expression to see the joy of just spending time together under a shade tree and to see the joy of affirming affection as 
being the unique friend, the very, very best friend in all the world to one another. Lord, I pray for all among us in the yet-to-be-married category. Lord, I pray, God, that you would bring the right person at the right time and that even now there would be that preparation of making a choice to be the best friend they could possibly be. And I pray for every married couple hearing this message here tonight and listening online that you would help them to to reaffirm their friendship, Lord. Just the joy of being one in spirit. The joy of looking into one another's eyes and seeing a reflection of yourself. The joy of holding hands with someone that is literally the most special person on earth to the other. The joy of knowing that God has wrought something beautiful between them. Lord, let that overwhelm sinful desires for selfishness and to be right and to argue and to have conflict. Let the friendships be so delightful and so warm and so affectionate, so filled with depth and joy. And then, Lord, I pray that as others in the world, as we are salt and light with even our marriages, that others in the world would see this and would wonder what sort of God is it that we serve? And that they too, seeing the proper picture of Christ in the church, in marriages, would desire Christ. Lord, I thank you. We thank you as a church that the Lord Jesus Christ condescended to make us his friends. We're so blessed by this text and we ask you to nail these truths deeply into our hearts and let us apply them this week. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.